Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. So, last week we started a sermon series through the book of Exodus, and we are continuing it this week. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll talk about this text. God and Father, I pray that you might be speaking to our hearts, drawing us to trust in you as we see your works. Long ago, little story of this family and their struggle. Pray that you would be near to us as we walk through it. Be with us sinners as we sit under it, and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week in Exodus 1, uh, we did two things. One is we kind of talked about the text, but the other thing is at the beginning, we talked a little bit about the fact that what we are doing is preaching through a book from the Old Testament, and sometimes that is hard for us, and so last week we talked a little bit about what the Old Testament is and how we think about it. And um, one of my hopes as we work through this book is that we'll return to that, as well as kind of working through the book of Exodus, to get some tools to help us read the Old Testament. And so to that end, as we get ready to look at this familiar to many of us story of Moses as a baby, I want us to do something a little different. Rather than just talk about the text, I want to... I want us to actually say there's um, a couple of questions I think we should ask when we read any story in the Old Testament. And what we're going to do this morning is take those questions and then try to ask them of this text. Um, And those questions, basically there's three of them, and I'll just tell you them now. They're this. Whenever we read a story in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we should ask three questions. What do we learn from the human characters? What do we learn about God and his character? And how does this connect with the story of Jesus? All right? We need to ask all three of those questions. And often I think it's our failure to do that that can make parts of the Old Testament seem strange. But what I want us to do this morning, rather than kind of spoil what we're going to say up front, is just take those questions and walk through this story as we ask them. All right? So the first question is, what do we learn from the human characters? What do we learn from the human characters in this story? about how we should or shouldn't live. And just to note, um, 
So, so let's read verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So that sounds like a pretty boring verse, um, because we just started reading in chapter 2, if you weren't last, here with us last week. But last week, at the end of chapter 1, we see this rising persecution of the king of Egypt against the Israelites that are there. And they're enslaved, and then ultimately at the end of Exodus 1, Pharaoh gives this decree that says that um, every Egyptian is ordered by the state to kill any Hebrew baby that's a, that's a boy that's born. All right? So... When we read that, oh, and this couple got married, we should have that kind of sense of trepidation, right, about what came before. And sure enough, then, in verse 2, we read that the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So this kid, right, because remember, chapter 1 just happened, is in mortal peril. He's supposed to be killed. And when it says that his mother saw that he was a fine child, I don't think that that means that, like, she was kind of weighing the cost-benefit analysis. I think that's just a way of saying she looked at the baby and loved him, right? I don't know any parent who doesn't look at their child and think, what a fine baby I have. But so she looks at him and loves him, and so she hides him away for a few months. But she knows that it's just delaying the inevitable, right? Eventually, she's going to have to take him outside, or somebody's going to find out what's going on. And so she comes up with a plan. Uh, Verses 3 and 4. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So this is kind of crazy, right? Um, This is one of those times where if you, like, did the church thing growing up and you hear these stories, somehow this seems normal. But this is a weird thing that Moses' mom decides to do, right? She takes this basket and she waterproofs it. That's what, you know, she's rubbed bitumen and pitches there to, to seal it in from the water. And she hides it among the reeds of the Nile. Now, it's clear in what she's doing here that she's not abandoning her baby in the sense, you know, of like not caring about him, right? She's hoping that something good is going to happen. That's why she spends all this time taking care with the basket and stations his sister to watch out. But still, what she's doing is kind of crazy. Um, but here's what happens then, um, starting in verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe. Uh, Bathing in the Nile is a pretty common thing, and this is probably sort of what Moses' mother was hoping would happen. Uh, But she sees the basket and finds the baby, and it's not her child, but her heart is moved, right? She sees this little baby and realizes what's going on and feels sorrow for it. Um, And then at this point, Moses' sister springs into action. Starting in verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And so... This, the way it plays out, right, is clearly, I mean, probably more than Moses' mother could have ever hoped for when she hid the baby. She gets the child back, and she gets to raise him under royal protection. And more than that, she's being paid to raise her own child. But then, verse 10, 
When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses is saved, um, and then grows up as a part of Pharaoh's household. And he's given the name Moses, which sounds like the Hebrew for to draw out. So that story, as we read it, what do we make of that in terms of just these human characters that are interacting? There's two things when I think about it at that level that stand out to me. One is the faith of Moses' mother. Uh, It's interesting as we watch the story, because kind of like we said, on the one hand, it's clear that she has a plan, right? It's clear that she's doing something that she hopes will save her baby. But at at the same time, she's taking a huge risk, right? She's not—some people will read the story and be like, you know, she just put him out there and, like, an alligator was going to eat him. And that's not what she was trying to do, right? She probably knows this is a part of the river where Egyptians come to bathe and is hoping that maybe one of them might find the baby and take pity on it. Um, but she's still taking an action that only works if God shows up. It might be that nobody discovers the baby. Or more likely, it might be that the Egyptian that discovers the baby recognizes the same thing as Pharaoh's daughter— But instead of taking pity and adopting the child, decides to do what Pharaoh had commanded them to do and kill the child. Um, So Moses' mother is in a situation where um, she recognizes that she's going to have to trust God in this. Now it's worth noting, right, keeping the child, keeping Moses would have have risks too. Like inevitably at some point people are going to find out that she's kept this child, right? And Pharaoh's decree is going to kick in and they're going to try to kill the child. So it's not like she could just keep him and never have to face it. But there is another, a real sense in which what she's doing in this story is having to put trust in God um, and, and take this step out into this risky situation. It's common to portray faith as a leap in the dark. Have you guys ever heard that expression? Faith is like a leap of faith. Um, and that doesn't actually come from the Bible, for the record. It comes from the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. But, um, but it's a tricky analogy, talking about that idea of a leap of faith for me. Because sometimes I hear it and I think, I don't think that that's right. But other times, I do think there's a sense in which it's true. So first of all, when we talk about having to take a leap of faith, um, biblically, uh, there's wrong ways people take that. Some, of, some people, I think, take it, and frankly, they think that um, a leap of faith is an excuse to be dumb, which is to say that, that, that it means that you just be foolish and don't plan. And um, look, it's, faith is not like blindfolding yourself and then walking out into traffic, right? Just saying like, oh, God will protect me. It's not— um, it's not failing to be, you know, I mean, we ought to be wise, and we ought to be careful, and, um, you know, and plan, and be sensible. And there is an idea that people have that, like, like, if you're called to be a missionary, faith means that you should just not worry about, like, language training, or support, or, you know, or finding an organization, and just, like, buy a plane ticket and go over there. And that is not what faith would call us to, right? That's foolishness. So a leap of faith is not foolishness. Um, And other people sometimes use that idea to make faith sound irrational. Um, And that is also wrong. When someone has honest questions about God, or the Bible, or God's character, you should not tell them, like, like, look, man, just just forget your questions. You just got to have faith, man. You know, I mean, as if that somehow answers the questions that they have. That isn't right either, because the whole idea of faith rests on believing things are true about God. Right? If, the, if the things that we're believing in aren't true, then faith is not worthwhile. Faith 
It's like jumping out of an airplane would maybe be the best way to think about this, which is to say, um, I've never done that, just for the record. It would be cool, but since I have young kids, I probably won't for a number of years. But, um, but like, on the one hand, you should not be foolish when you're jumping out of an airplane, right? You should go find, like, an organization that knows what they're doing and a licensed instructor. Um, and you shouldn't be irrational when you do it. The choice to jump out of an airplane should be based on the assumption that these people know what they're doing, and they've checked all the equipment, and they're going to be professional about it, right? Like, I should not—if if I come to you and say, like, I, I watched a YouTube video, and I built a parachute, right? <laughs> like, you should not jump out of the airplane with me. But all of that said, even as you're being wise, and even if you're, you know, thinking those things through, there's still a moment where you're going to have to jump out of the plane. There are still things in life that are uncertain. There are things that God calls us into that are uncertain. And while we should be wise, and while we should think carefully and believe things are true, there does come a point where we have to jump and trust him to catch us. There are times that our desire for immediate safety actually keep us from experiencing God's work in our lives. That's the situation with Moses' mother. She could, she could keep choosing to keep this baby safe in the moment, right? She could just choose to try to hide him away forever, and it's not going to work forever. But in the moment, he would be safer. Um, in order to see God work, though, what she has to do is take a risk. And we need to learn that same lesson in our lives. That when we come to that point, right, when we've done the things that are appropriate for us and been careful and thoughtful and wise, when we come to those points where we still have to confront life's uncertainty, we are called to step out in faith like she does. Um, so that's one of the two things that the human characters show us. And then the other thing, which is more subtle, but I just think is worth pointing out um, about this story, are the unlikely heroes of it. The unlikely heroes of the story. In the first place, um, it's just worth bearing in mind in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus that the world of the Old Testament is a male-dominated world, right? Like, men are the, the characters everywhere. And we have, both in Exodus 1 with the Hebrew midwives, and here, stories in which all of the, the heroes are women, right? It's worth bearing in mind. There's, there's five people, and they're all women, who all kind of serve heroic roles in those two stories. Um, I mean, frankly, like, where is Moses' dad in all of this, right? It's worth bearing in mind that there's a real sense in which these stories in the world that they exist are challenging that. And even more than that, one of the women is Pharaoh's daughter. We tend to focus on Moses' mother, right, as the kind of hero of the story, and there's a real sense that she is. But there's a real sense, too, um, in which we're called to recognize and appreciate Pharaoh's daughter, even though she's not a part of Israel, and there's no indication that she believes in the living God, right? She sees this baby, and, I mean, she, just like the rest of Egypt, is under orders to kill this child, but instead she decides to use her position of privilege to, um, to adopt the baby as her own and protect him. And that's something that really is worthy of praise. We tend to assume, I think, um, that the Bible is going to tell stories where there's people with white hats and people with black hats, and everything is really simple and clear-cut. And it rarely tells stories like that. There are people outside of God's people that show virtue, and people inside of God's people who do terrible things, even though they should know better. And that's subtle in this story, but I want to point it out because it's really important to this first question, where we say that we should ask what we learn from the human characters in a Bible story. 
it's not always that we should take them as good examples, right? Even if they're a part of God's people, even if in other times they are good examples, it's important for us to remember that the, the stories that Scripture tells are often complicated, right? With people that we recognize good and bad in. And I point that out because um, one of the questions about the Old Testament I get the most often is somebody will take this story and be like, look at what, look at what this person did. Look at what, you know, Abraham or Moses or David or whatever did. Like, how can this be in the Bible? And the answer is, it's in the Bible because you're not supposed to be like that. All right? So it's just worth bearing that in mind when we think about watching the human characters. So that's the first question. But that also, I think, is often the only question we ask when we read the Old Testament, right? What kind of example are the characters, the human beings in this story? Um, but I want us to, to ask a second question that I mentioned at the beginning, too. And that is, what do we learn about God and his character from this story? In some ways, that's maybe a more important question. What do we learn about God and his character? So God is not explicitly mentioned as acting in this story. But one of the important things to recognize throughout the book of Exodus is that God is in control of this thing. God is in control of the events that are happening. As much as things are dark for Israel, it is within God's plan. In fact, back when God called Abraham, right, and created the people that that would ultimately become Israel, um, when he's making his promises to Abraham, this is part of what he tells him. From Genesis 15, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So hundreds of years before... Exodus 1 and 2, God has already laid out this plan for his people that includes the hardship that they're facing in these chapters. Um, that part of what he declares to Abraham about Israel's future includes their slavery and oppression and suffering under Egypt. Now that doesn't mean that their slavery was a good thing, right? That's one of the things we always have to be very careful about when we read those things. God is in control of everything in the world and at work in everything, but inasmuch as this world is still broken by evil, right, he, well, he's in control over those things, that doesn't somehow make the evil things good. However, he does rule over the world in a way that includes those dark and hard parts of it. That's how he can declare to Abram that those things are going to happen. So that's part of it. God's in control of this thing. But what's great about stories like this one is that it reminds us that God's control isn't just sort of the sweep of history. What he declares to Abram is just the sort of big picture story that he's at work with. But in this story, we're reminded that God's control and plan um, is, is, so, is so also like focused that he's directly engaged with this family. Um, Stephen in the New Testament, who was the first Christian martyr, in Acts chapter 7, he gives this speech where he kind of reviews the history of Israel. And when he gets to Moses, this is how he starts Moses' story. He says, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was beautiful in God's sight, which is really striking if you read Exodus 2, because in Exodus 2, we have this, Moses' mother gives birth, and she sees that he's a fine child, and then 
Greek translation of that. It's even closer to what Stephen's going to say. Don't worry about that. But, um, but Stephen then uses that same language, right, to describe um, Moses' birth, but not to say that his mother looks and, you know, and his, sees this child as beautiful, but the God looks and likewise sees this child as beautiful. The God is somehow just as near to Moses in his birth as his mother is. So God isn't just involved in the big picture sweep of history, but in this story, he's intimately engaged with the events of his family's life. When Moses' mother carries out her plan, she is doing it trusting that God is involved at this level. Um, she's put forward in scripture and as an example of faith, and the faith she has isn't just that God's sort of ultimately ruling over history, but that somehow he, um, he is paying attention to this baby in a basket in between the bulrushes of the Nile. Which means that we need to recognize that this story works out in a way that's meant to teach us about God's work in the world. God is the one who keeps Moses safe, who orchestrates it so that Pharaoh's daughter will find him and softens her heart to feel compassion for the baby. He is the one who makes her decide to take the child in and pay Moses' mother. All of these things are things that God is working through. And when we say that, there's two things that should make us realize about um, how God is at work. One is that we see ways in which his work is incredibly good. Moses is found by a princess, not just some Egyptian. And, um, and this princess actually, like, asks his mother to, ra- you know, to raise him as a young child and take care of him and pays her to do it. So it's way better than anything that Moses' mother could have planned. But at the same time, God's plan is also hard. And we shouldn't miss that either, because while Moses' mother does not lose her child to Pharaoh's decree of execution, she does end up losing him. She has to give him up to, um, to Pharaoh's daughter, and, um, and she raises him as her own. And, um, and so there's a real sense in which while God's provision is good, there is still a real hardness and loss that Moses' mother has to feel. And those things belong together, that, God's, that, that incredible goodness and that hardness for two reasons. One is that while God is at work in the world, like we said, this world is still broken by sin and evil. And while God is working in a way that will ultimately heal and fix everything, that moment hasn't come yet. And in the present, his provision often meets us in the midst of hard and difficult things. That God is telling a good story in the middle of a bad world. But more importantly, God's good plan is at times hard because he's often doing more than Moses' mother or sister or anyone else in the middle of the story would ever have dreamed. Moses' mother just wants her baby to be safe. But God is at work in a story that ultimately leads to delivering Israel from bondage. Many of the hard things that happen to Moses in these early chapters, this is just the beginning, he's got a rough, you know, next 40 years, but many of the hard things that happen to Moses um, in the early chapters of Exodus are there to prepare him for his ultimate mission as God's deliverer, leading Israel out of Egypt. That's all true of how God works in this story about Moses, and it is true in our lives as well. Both of those realities, God's goodness and at times the hardness, are essential to how we live by faith. On the one hand, faith requires us to recognize that God is good, that God is not just in control like like the force or something, right? It's not just like fate in some impersonal way. That God is in control in the universe in a way that is working good, 
that that affection that Stephen speaks of God having for Moses, that, that love for him, that God feels that for us as he works out his plan in the universe. I remember um, after our daughter Rebecca was born, um, super early, you know, major health crisis our family's facing, and, um, and we don't know whether she's going to survive. And that was in many ways the thing I had to realize about my heart. It wasn't like questioning whether God was in control, right? It was questioning whether God was good, whether he was in control in a way that I could trust in and walk in, whether he cared. And the thing that ultimately got me through that struggle was the simple belief that my daughter is also his daughter, right? That this child belongs to him as well as me, and in his goodness, he will care for her. God knows the details of our lives. He cares about us specifically. And that does not mean that bad or hard things don't happen, like we keep saying, but it does mean that um, God cares for us in a way that when we confront those dark and broken times, he carries and sustains us through them and is at work through them ways that are still good, even though it's hard. So God's goodness, but at the same time, we also have to recognize that often God is working in ways that are bigger than you or me. Sometimes I struggle with faith because I struggle to believe that God is good, like we've said. But there are other times where I struggle with faith because I don't actually want what's truly good. Uh, sometimes um, I think about, like, my children, and I reflect on the the competing desires I feel for them in the world. I want them to love Jesus and follow him and walk with him as they grow up. And I want them to be comfortable and safe and have easy lives. And I want them to, um, to live near me and have careers that make lots of money to provide for me in my old age and give me grandkids. Those last ones, I, will f I don't feel that strongly yet. That's <laughs> They'll have to get a few years older before that really kicks in. But I feel those desires, right, side by side in my heart. And the struggle that I have often is that those two desires don't always fit together for my kids. I, there are times that, I mean, I know I've talked to some of you where, you know, God calls your kids to go through something hard or do something challenging or pursue a vocation that calls them far away or whatever. And in those moments, we have to ask, what are the things that we're truly caring about? The good that God is working or those other desires that we have? And that's not just true for, like, our children, although I, we can maybe see it more clearly in them. That is true in our lives as well. The faith isn't just believing that God is good. It's also trusting in the sort of good that he is working in the world. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness and believing that those are the truly valuable things in life. But we do that because we are also then called to recognize that often what God is doing, the good he's working in our lives, is more than we would ever imagine for ourselves. When you read this story, just think about the dreams that Moses' mother had for this baby, right? What, what, what were her dreams for Moses? Her dreams would have been um, that he would have grown up in their house and married a nice Hebrew girl and, you know, had some babies and, you know, worked beside the family and been close. Like, that's, that's the life that she would have imagined having with her son. But the more you carry that out, the more you recognize that Moses, in that dream, is still growing up in the mud pits, making bricks for Pharaoh. And Israel is still enslaved by Egypt, and salvation doesn't come. And it is only in seeing those dreams die for Moses' mother 
that the incredible story that God ends up telling can begin to happen, right? She loses her son to Pharaoh's household. She doesn't get to have any of those things that every mother hopes in for their child. But that's because this son was going to have to stand before Pharaoh and demand that he let God's people go and that he would stand before the Red Sea and see it part before him and stand on the mountain and somehow meet with God face to face. Those were not the things that Moses' mother would have dreamed for her child. They were much more than she ever would have imagined. So we have to ask ourselves what kinds of dreams we dream for our lives. Faith is in a real sense a calling to dream God's dreams for ourselves and for those around us. A calling to step out of what is comfortable and easy, trusting that as we do so, God will work in ways that are good, both for us and for the world. So we see those two levels. We see these human characters, and then we see God's character. But there's one more level that we're actually called to engage in as well when we read Old Testament stories. And that is how does this connect with the story of Jesus? How does this connect with the story of Jesus? And that might seem like a strange question for some of us who aren't used to this kind of thing, because um, it never talks about Jesus in this story, right? There's not like a messianic prophecy or something like that in the Old Testament here. Um, One of the ideas that's really important to understanding how the Bible works is to understand that the New Testament treats the Old Testament in a real sense as being about Jesus, telling a story that is ultimately centered on Jesus. But the way it usually understands that happening is through the Old Testament foreshadowing Jesus. Foreshadowing. Do you remember that word from like English class? If you, <laughs> right? So the idea of foreshadowing is that if you're reading like a story or watching a movie or something, you start to get hints of a thing that's going to happen later on because of things that happen earlier in that same story. You start to see certain themes or certain objects or, or certain ideas that ultimately are going to lead you to this fuller um, realization of the story later. And the Bible often treats the, um, the Old Testament as foreshadowing Jesus. So like in 1 Corinthians 10, this is what Paul says about the events of the Exodus. He says, Now these things have happened to them as an example— but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. And that word that's translated example, it's the Greek word for type, right? Maybe another way to read that would be these were written down as a type of the thing that, you know, that God is that is to come. But then we ultimately, at the end of the ages, see it more fully realized. The author of the Hebrews says it like this. He says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. So the law, by which he means the first five books of the Old Testament, that's when the Bible talks about the law, that's really what it's talking about. And Exodus is a part of that. It's a shadow of this thing that is going to be realized more fully later. And that might seem like a weird way of thinking about the Bible if you've never encountered it before. But it's actually something that Jesus does a whole lot when he explains his own ministry. Let me give you a couple of examples. So like Jesus talking about his crucifixion, He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Or when Jesus talks about his resurrection, for example, For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
You see how that's working? There's this idea that there's this, this theme that's sounded in the Old Testament that Jesus ultimately fulfills. And the best way to pr- think about that, I think, is to think of Jesus as the true and perfect form of all of these Old Testament realities. True and perfect. So he's like the true and perfect king. Right? King David in the Old Testament is sort of like the, the ideal of a king, and then there's other kings after that. But all of them are broken by sin and imperfect realizations of God's promises. And Jesus comes as this true and perfect fulfillment of that theme of kingship. And that's true. He's the true and perfect Adam and Abraham and temple and sacrifice and all these different Old Testament ideas. Um, and all of that should lead us then— let me just—if if that's a new idea for you, I encourage you— think about it a little, and then, like this afternoon, go read the book of Hebrews, because basically the book of Hebrews is, um, the first 11 chapters are basically a protracted argument about that Jesus is the true and perfect, these things. But anyway, um, all of that leads us to the reality that Jesus is the true and perfect Moses, too. Um, And that should remind us of the reality that Jesus is this Savior, like Moses is for God's people. We will return to this idea as we work through Exodus. But for now, Moses, like Jesus, should remind us that God's Savior has come. See, when we read the story of Moses, we have a tendency to picture ourselves as Moses. Do you do this? Where, you know, we watch, like, Moses doing this stuff, and we think, like, oh, I'm supposed to be like Moses. And that's sort of fine. There's ways in which Moses is an example for us. But more properly, the people we should identify with in the story of Moses— are the Israelites, right? We're, we're God's people kind of watching this deliverance that God is working through Moses and experiencing his salvation. And so when we read this story that way, we recognize in Moses this hope that God is sending this hero to work deliverance and salvation for his people. And that is the same hope we have. It's really striking. We read this story, right? We have this, this birth of this child who's under threat from an evil king, and God supernaturally intervenes and delivers this child from danger. Um, and that, that summary of this story about Moses is just as easily a summary of the story of Jesus' birth right? I mean, Jesus is born, and the Gospels actually, in many ways, echo this exact narrative in the way that they describe Herod's decree that all the, 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 the boy children in Bethlehem should be killed, right? And God intervenes in the night and calls Joseph and Mary to flee, supernaturally delivering the child. And even the place they go to, which is Egypt, right? I, I mean, reminds us of this sort of sense that in the same way, God in Jesus is bringing this true and perfect Moses work salvation. And here's the reason that that matters. When we talk about faith and say that it rests on God's goodness, we are not just saying that we're supposed to have faith in some abstract idea that God is good. It is God's demonstrated goodness that is supposed to drive our faith. God's evidence of his goodness given to us in Jesus Christ. God um, has worked, just like he's working here in Exodus, to bring us out of the darkness of our slavery. He came in Jesus to win our salvation and died and rose again to break the tyranny of sin and release us from slavery to it and bring us out into life in him. He has worked this good for us. He is the God of our salvation. And it is in recognizing that salvation that we then find faith to trust God in the present. 
That's why it's important to recognize in this story an echo that will ultimately culminate in Jesus. Because Jesus, as the true and perfect Moses, is the one who comes to set us free. Last week in chapter 1, we noticed how there's this darkness, and that resonates with the darkness that we feel in our world. Um, But what chapter 2 of Exodus reminds us of at this point in the story is that as much as there's ways in which we still resonate with Israel's slavery in Egypt, that is not where we fit in the story anymore. Because in our world, Moses has come. We don't live in Egypt as Christians. That's actually going to be important to recognize. There's a sense in which we still feel, you know, we're still in the world, but we are not enslaved in Egypt as Christians. We're also not in the promised land yet as Christians, and that's getting ahead of us in the story, right? That's the other mistake you can make. But, I mean, the Bible consistently pictures us in this in-between place, in the wilderness, um, as God has brought us out in salvation with Jesus, although we have yet to finally enter into our inheritance and life. What we do then in this wilderness age is put faith in God through the work of deliverance that he has done and anticipate the work of salvation that will ultimately be fulfilled. That is the place that we are in this story. And as we recognize in Jesus Christ that the true and perfect Moses has brought us out of Egypt and is still leading us, we have hope to follow him home. So that's how the story meets us. It gives us an example of faith in Moses' mother. It reminds us of the foundation of our faith in God's goodness, but also reminds us that often the story that God is telling is one that will be hard for us. But most of all, as it echoes down through the passage of Scripture, it draws us to remember Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is in him that we're saved as we trust in him, and it is through him that we will ultimately be brought to rest. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that in Jesus Christ we have deliverance. You have brought us out of our slavery to sin and darkness and are working to bring us home. Pray that you would be near to us now in this in-between time. Nourish our faith. Minister to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And be near all of us as we struggle to follow your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name.